0: Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're ready. In fellowship... Ready to focus and concentrate, filled with the Holy Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer for the utilization of 1 John 1.9. If necessary, then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word that You have revealed so much to us. We thank You for the incredible depth of Your revelation that the more we study, the more there is to learn, the more that is exposed to us. And the promise of Your Word that the more we learn and are obedient to You, the more You disclose Yourself to us. Now, Father, as we study Your Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge. Of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in our fourth session this morning in our study of the Old Testament. How to understand the Old Testament. And we have seen how important the Old Testament is, that even in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament teach us that it is important for us to study these things, that it is by study of uh, the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, Paul said to Timothy and Paul, uh, 2 Timothy 3.15, that it was by the study of the holy writings that he was able to come to salvation. And Paul also tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that we are to study these things, that they happen as an example to us. So unfortunately, many people get the idea somehow that the Old Testament is not as relevant as the New Testament. And yet Scripture says that all Scripture, which primarily had a reference to the Old Testament, is profitable. So we begin with just an overview Seeing that the Old Testament is divided up into three sections, or five sections really, in our English Bible, there's the Law, the Historical Books, Poetry, Major Prophets, and Minor Prophets. The Law was written by Moses, includes five books, the Pentateuch, and that was written approximately 1440 BC in the plains of Moab, as the Israelites were on the verge of entering into the Promised Land and conquering the Canaanites. The second division is the historical division which covers the period of the United Kingdom up to about 931 B.C. when the northern kingdom and southern kingdom are divided into uh, northern uh, Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel goes out under discipline in 722 B.C. when they're defeated by the Assyrians and those ten northern tribes are scattered and the south goes out under discipline when they're conquered by Nebuchadnezzar uh, on the third invasion in 586 B.C. Following the exile, uh, a number returned to the land, and the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther cover that post-exilic period. Now, if you look at this chart on the, on the board as we see it, that gives you the framework for understanding the Old Testament. This is the broad category. This is the historical overview of everything in the Old Testament. The other books, the uh, poetry book, the pro- prophets, the major prophets, and minor prophets all fit within this historical framework. So if you can understand this historical framework, then you will be able to put the details together and begin to make sense of the Old Testament. Job was probably the first Old Testament book written. We don't know when it was. Sometime probably between the flood and Abraham, but we're uncertain as to its exact The Psalms were written by various authors, primarily David, but Moses wrote one Psalm at least. Some other Psalms were written in the post-exilic period and during the exile, so they cover a period of time. The Solomonic books include Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Those were written during Solomon's lifetime. Isaiah was written in the 7th century uh, B.C. Isaiah, Jeremiah lived before and during the exile. He went with the group to Egypt. Ezekiel lived before and during the exile, and he went to uh, Babylon. Daniel as well went to Babylon. Then you have the 12 minor prophets composed of pre-exilic, exilic, exilic, and then the three post-exilic prophets of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now that shows you how everything in the Old Testament fits together. And we passed out that chart so you can look at that and begin to orient yourself. Now we saw last time that there is a theme, a major thematic structure in the Old Testament, and this is centered around the birth in Exodus, Exodus 19:5 through 6a. We have seen in our study how you have a fast progression of time through Genesis, from Genesis 1 through 11 covers approximately 2000 years of of history on the earth. And then you have things slow down from Abraham to the end of Genesis. That covers approximately 360 years. From Exodus 1 up through Exodus 19, that too covers approximately 360 years. And then things come to a screeching halt. And from Exodus 19 through Exodus 40, we, all of those events take place in under a year. So there's, that tells us time-wise that this is what... Uh, the focus is of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch must be taken as one whole document, the theme of which is related to the verse here in Exodus 195 5-6a. Now then, God is speaking to Moses. He says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation that in terms of God's plan for history in the Old Testament, he had chosen the nation Israel and they were to serve as a priest nation in relation to all of the other nations. And we saw that the pr- primary purpose of a priest is an intercessor and as a mediator. So it would be through Israel that all of the other nations would come to a knowledge of God and be able to worship God. And the central place of worship then would be the first book, Genesis, which in the Hebrew is Bereshit, which means beginning. And if you want to understand Genesis, you want to have a good overview of the structure of Genesis, just remember it involves four events and four people. The four events are creation, fall, flood, and Babel. We are in the midst of studying the creation. We'll finish through the fall this morning. Four people are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the patriarchs of the nation Israel. Now last time we saw that as we study this, it's helpful to have some isagogical background. One of the things that has been studied in recent years is because of archaeological discoveries of various ancient documents. And we learned that the Pentateuch is written in the uh, form of an ancient secular contract form called a Suzerain-Vassal Treaty Form. Now Suzerain According to the American Heritage Dictionary, I put this up here so some of you can learn how to spell it, means, first of all, list lists two definitions. First of all, a nation that controls another nation in international affairs, but allows it, really I would say allows it a measure of domestic sovereignty. It has, uh, like a satellite nation, much like the Eastern Bloc served to the Soviet Union during that time. A second meaning is a reference to a feudal lord. This would be a uh, term usually used in feudalism to study the Middle Ages, a feudal lord to whom fealty or obedience was due. The sense in which we're using this in description of the, of the treaty is that there is a great king of an empire who has a satellite nation and he enters into a certain contract with either that king or with that nation. And in that contract, he describes the roles and responsibilities of the vassal to the suzerain, to the great lord, and, and what the, what will, uh, how the great Lord will benefit him in terms of blessings and what will happen if he violates the contract in terms of cursings. And this is the basic structure that we see in all of the tentatives. Uh, the term vassal refers, first of all, to a person who held land from a feudal lord and received protection in return for homage and allegiance. It can also refer to a bondman or a slave or a subordinate or dependent. So here we're using it, it is used in the sense of a nation that is in a subordinate role to a greater nation, king, or empire. The Suzerain-Vassal Treaty refers to a mid-second millennium, that's about 1500 B.C., the time frame in which we're speaking when Moses wrote the uh, Pentateuch, refers to a mid-second millennium secular treaty form between a powerful king or empire and its vassal state, for client nations. now a point I want to make is that it's not so much that God has modeled His covenant on a human model, but that the human models, as we're going to see in our study this morning in Genesis 1, the human concept of a covenant, a contract, or a treaty is rooted in God's original declaration to Adam in the garden. God sets the standard and then man imitates it in His contractual agreement. Man came along and said, "We need to enter into a contract." So, uh, let me see. God did this to Adam, so let's uh, let's model what we're going to do on what God did. So God set the standard, and man imitates that. And even though the term covenant is not used in Genesis one, as we will see, it is a, a covenant agreement. And this is about where we ended last time. That the original account of the creation of man in Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven. Is a covenant establishing situation related to God's statement to Noah. So, as we get started, open your Bible to Genesis chapter six, verse eighteen, and we will look at what God says to Noah. We'll look at Genesis six eighteen, and then shift over briefly to look at Genesis nine before we get into uh, Genesis chapter one. This is so important to lay the foundation for everything else that happens in the Old Testament. If you can understand God's covenant to Moses and its significance to Israel, because Israel is the center point of the Old Testament. It is not the purpose of the Old Testament. Remember I said last time that the purpose of the Old Testament is not Israel. Israel as a mediator is a means to an end. So the overall purpose has to do with the nations and salvation. But salvation itself is a means to an end. It is not the end itself. You are saved from something to something. So the overall purpose of the Old Testament must have a a meaning, a purpose that is greater than simply Israel or salvation. And so it is expressed in terms of ultimately glorifying God in the angelic conflict. Now in Genesis 6.18 we read, God speaking to Noah now, but I will establish my covenant with you. You shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wives and your sons' wives with you. Now, what we see, what we saw last time, is the question is, is God establishing a new covenant with Noah or is this a reference to an older covenant? Because in the at this particular time, or in Genesis 6, 18, this is the first time that the Hebrew word berit, which means covenant, is used in the Old Testament. And... God does not establish a covenant. He does not come down. In fact, I always like the original Hebrew uh, idiom. It means to cut a covenant. That's the term. It doesn't mean to make a covenant. contract. It's literally to cut a covenant. And God does not come down and cut the covenant with Noah until Genesis chapter 9. So Genesis 6.18 establishes the fact that, that God is going to make a covenant with, with Noah. Following the flood, which was a worldwide deluge, Following the flood, when they come off the ark, God enters into a new contractual arrangement with the human race. And we see this in Genesis chapter 9. What you should do when you're taking notes, draw a circle in Genesis 6.18 around my covenant. Draw a line out to the margin and put a reference then to see uh, Genesis 9.1 and following. Genesis 9.1 see the provisions of the Noahic covenant laid out by God. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now I want you to take note of some of the provisions here because we're going to see their parallel in Genesis 1. Just as God told Noah and his sons to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, so God tells Adam and Eshah in the garden before the fall to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 9-2 reads, And the fear of you... And the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Now this is going to be a slightly different view of man's relationship to the animal kingdom than we find in the pre-fall, pristine, perfect environment of the garden. There Adam is to rule, but there is no hint of fear or domination in Genesis uh, 9, there's also the institution of meat-eating for the human race, which was not true prior to the flood. Prior to the flood, man was a vegetarian. At, at the time of the Noahic Covenant, God establishes for man that he must eat meat. Verse 3, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Now, that sentence, as I, that clause, rather, as I gave the green plant, goes back to what God says in Genesis 1. That God says, I have given all the um, plants in the field for your food. So God's ultimate provision for this goes back again, showing the similarity between the Noahic covenant and what takes place in Genesis 1. Genesis 9, 7, And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Now behold, I myself to establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And so this is a worldwide covenant between Noah and God. And so this covenant, the Noahic covenant, is still in effect today. We still look outside at times when the storm's coming up and we see a rainbow. That rainbow is the sign of the Noahic covenant. It has not changed and will not change until God destroys the earth by fire at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now let's go to our passage in Genesis 1.26 and 27 to understand the significance of the human race. When God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule. Notice here it's rule over as opposed to fear being upon the fish of the sea. He is to rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creep. On the earth, and God created man in His own image, in the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it." Notice the similarity with Genesis 9. If Genesis 9 is a covenant, this is all that I'm saying: is if Genesis 9 is a covenant, then Genesis 1:26 through 30 is a covenant, even though the term covenant is not used. Because of the similarities, the parallel, and the terminology, what we have here is the first covenant between God and man. It is a contractual relationship that God enters into with man. And this is because we will see in Genesis 2, the, the uh, one test, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it is uh, a conditional covenant conditioned on man's obedience to the prohibition. Genesis one twenty eight. God blessed him, to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So man's role, we'll come back to this, is to rule the earth and to subdue the earth. That puts man in a unique relationship to everything else in the created order. What do I, why is that significant? The reason that is significant is it tells us that everything on the earth was made for man. Let me say that again. Everything on the earth was made for man. Man is not just another cog in the, in the animal kingdom. Everything was made for him. Plants were made for man. Animals were made for man. Everything is made for man. That sets man up as distinct from everything else in the created order. Everything is made for him. shows us that the entire creation is anthropocentric. Now, I think certain implications follow from that. One is the it has tremendous implications for just the creation-evolution debate. Secondly, it has implications for the significance of man, and it has implications in relation to the entire environmental debate because it shows that man is not part of nature, according to pantheism, but man rules over nature. And even though we live in a fallen environment, that relationship still continues. I think another implication here is that Uh, on the issue of population exposure. Everybody gets worried every now and then about how populous the earth is getting. We forget that God's in control and that the original mandate was reiterated in Genesis 9 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and God has not stopped that. Remember if the rainbow is set as the sign of the covenant, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is just as much part of that covenant and still in effect. As is everything else in the Noahic covenant including capital punishment. So as long as you you go outside and see a rainbow, these things are still in effect. God is the sovereign in control, so we don't need to be uh, concerned, upset, punch the panic button over these environmentalist issues and population explosion issues and all of this because the only reason you do that is if you have rejected at the beginning a divine viewpoint view of the purpose for the human race and purpose for human history. Let's go on verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it should be food for you. And this just shows that God has supplied abundantly for man, that God in His grace always supplies everything man needs. This is a principle that we will see again and again and again throughout the Scriptures. God is sufficient for man. He always supplies everything man needs. The problem is not that God hasn't supplied everything man needs but that man continuously rejects that provision and wants something else. He wants to redefine everything. So, brings us to point one this morning, the creation account of man as the image of God in Genesis 1, 26-27. Creation of mankind occurs on the sixth day in Genesis chapter 1, and that sixth day is then picked up as the theme for chapter 2. Chapter 2 focuses on everything that takes place on that sixth day. This is a stylistic device in Hebrew narrative that is very common. It's called pearling. That's the technical term for it. It's called pearling, like a pearl that you find in an oyster. What you'll do is you'll have a series of events, a string of events, a string of pearls, and then you'll go back and you'll pick one of them, and that becomes the subject that is expounded upon and developed in more detail in the next section. So you have a string of events. You have seven days. Sixth of, of God's creative activity, the seventh where he rests. And then in the next chapter, you come back and take one event primarily on day six. And that beca- that is expanded and developed in the second chapter. But first, we have to look at what takes place here in verses 26 and 27. God says, let us. Incidentally, the term for God is Elohim indicating a plurality in the Godhead, and this is further emphasized by the plural pronoun us. God says, let us make man, Adam, which is often just a word used not for the particular individual, Adam, but for the human race, mankind. Let us make man, Adam, in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. Now, what is going on here is crucial to understanding the unique position of man in the created order. First of all, we see that man is made in the image and according to the likeness of God. The term for image is betsalmenu, in our image. From salam, meaning an image of representation, and according to the likeness. Now the question we have to ask when we look at this is, in what sense are we in the image and likeness of God? Is this an immaterial shadow image? Or is this a physical image, a physical representation of this thing that man looks like God? God has the form of a bipedal hominoid, Or is the answer a little bit of both? Well, answering this, is we're helped in answering this a little bit by understanding some of the verbiage that's used in the Suzerain vassal treaty form. Because what we discover in that treaty form is the vassal is often... um, The vassal is described as an image and a likeness of the great king. What does that mean? That means that this vassal king that's set up to rule this country, is the representative of the great king. He represents the king in all that he is. So if you want to know what the great king is like, then you look at the vassal king. He is to be the image, the reflection of the great sovereign. So man is to represent God. All of these are part of this package of image and likeness. So that image, first of all, is going to describe man's immaterial makeup, his soul, his mentality, his everything that is comprised of the immaterial nature because that is what makes man unique from all the other creatures. Many people think it's primarily located in man's intellectual ability because that allows man to function as the overlord. So what we see here is that the image, boil it down in a nutshell, all I'm saying is that the image is is a little bit of both. Primarily, it's in the immaterial aspect because that relates to who man is. But what we're also going to see is when you look at the text, when you look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the image is specifically related to function, to function, to what man does. So image and likeness is not just a static concept of his immaterial soul, But it is that immaterial soul as it relates to its function, to what man is to do in relation to the creation, why God has placed him on the earth, that there is a specific purpose. So image, first of all, describes man's immaterial makeup, the composition of his soul. Now support for this is found in the fact that Adam's descendants, who have been marred by sin, are said to be... In the image of Adam. In fact, when you come to Genesis 5:1, and you begin to see the Adam procreate, Adam and Eve have descendants. Then those children are said to be in the image of Adam, and according to his likeness. Then, when you get to Genesis 9, and God gives the reason why man, a man who who kills someone, a, a Someone who commits a homicide. Why a murderer is to be punished through capital punishment, have his life life taken, is because man is created in the image of God. Now think about this a minute. Man is said to be created in the image and likeness of God in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then in Genesis 5, when Adam procreates, his children are according to the image are in the image and according to the likeness of Adam, not God. Adam. That emphasizes the fact that something happened to this image. It's been marred by, by sin, but it's still, we're still, the image of God, and that's the reason why murder is wrong and why capital punishment is necessary in Genesis chapter nine. So the image is not lost by sin. It is simply, it is simply marred. Point number three here is that these terms. Image and likeness explain not merely that man is in the image of God, but that he is the image of God. He's not simply in the image of God, but he is the image of God. He is the representative of God. One term that's used is that he is the vice regent. He is the representative of God. He is to rule all the created order on the earth as God's underlord. He is serving God. And this is typical terminology in the ancient secular treaties. Point number four man was thus created to fulfill the role as of God's vice regent, God's personal representative and ruler over creation. That is why man is created higher than all the other creatures. That is what sets man apart, is that he is in the image and according to the likeness of God. So what man is, in terms of his immaterial makeup, is inseparably linked to what he is to do. Man is to rule the creation. He is set over creation. I want you to notice the terms that are used here in the text. Verse 26, we see that man is to rule over the animal creation. This is repeated in verse 28 with the command to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. Now, this is not a terminology or verbiage that is going to win tremendous friends in the uh, greenie movement or with the environmental activists because they think that man is just another cog in the machine of nature. And what I will develop in this, what you need to understand, is that is pure pagan thought. That is the same kind of thinking, which it should be obvious, an all pantheism, that man is just another piece of nature. And the implications of this are profound. Because if man is just another cog in the machine, then man's primary purpose is to make sure the machine... Continues to run smoothly and never changes. Now, think about that. If you are a, an Apache Indian living out there communing with nature in southern Arizona, or if you are in India, in a, a Hindu, then you're living in and with nature and you don't want to change nature. Because if you do much to change nature, then you're going to upset the harmony and the balance. Of nature, and now you've got major problems because that represents ultimate reality. Nature is God, and God is nature, and a pantheistic sense. In contrast to that, biblical Christianity says that man is to rule over nature, he is distinct from nature. So that God has given him all of these resources, and man's responsibility is to develop them, to do something with them, and that is going to change and transform. Form nature. He's not simply to be static. He is to build and develop and to grow. He's to get involved in mining operations, logging operations. Man is supposed to get involved in agriculture and farming, all of which is going to transform nature because man is over nature. God, is, God created everything in nature to be utilized by man. Now it should be utilized responsibly. It should not be, the land should not be raped. But you see, as a Christian, we should have a biblical view of ecology and responsible use of our resources and not a pagan view. And there's a difference. Even though there may be a lot of similarities, there are vast differences. And if you operate on a pagan view, on a pantheistic concept that manages part of nature, then you will be anti technology, you will be anti development, you will be. Uh, will end up being anti-logging because my, 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 we might affect a spotted owl or some other you know, creature in there, but without recognizing the fact that all this is created for man to rule and to subdue. That's what the terminology means. So this is very important to understand all these aspects and its implications. Now, when we come to looking at the image, one of the things we need to notice Few principles that man is created in this image to fulfill his role as the vice regent, and the physical body is to house the immaterial represent, representation of God. Now, what I'm getting at here is that it's not just a physical image. I mean, it's not just an immaterial image. It's not simply the soul, but that your physical body, the physical, by the way in which man is made in shape and formed physically. Is related to his function. So, God designed man to man physically to be the perfect physical machine in order to fulfill the responsibilities of being in the image and likeness of God. Let me make that more clear. In order to to have a creature fulfill the responsibilities God intended, God could not devise a better way to do it than the way you and I look. That's profound, especially when you think about all these odd little creatures that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Gene Roddenberry and everybody else tried to imagine. Out there, of course, they're restricted because their actors have to look at, are all bipedal hominoids. But God created us this way for a reason. So the physical body is not just by chance. Man's physical makeup is not secondary or just a, a, a chance thing, but it is specifically designed by an omniscient God to be the best form in which the immaterial image of God could express itself. Secondly, our physical body was known by God to be what would eventually house the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. Therefore, for God, eternal, infinite God, thinking in eternity past, now what is going to be the best physical form for me to take in order to express express my nature to mankind. what's that going to look like? So when God designs the human body, He knows that eventually He's going to be incarnate in that human body. So it's going to be a physical form that will be the best and highest representation of His essence. Once again, we don't look the way we do by chance. There is specific design to that. Our physical body is to be the highest and best possible home in, and which, in which and through which the immaterial image will function. Conclusion. Human physical design is not by chance or simply a functional design, but is specifically designed the way it is to express God's will and to house God's Son and to fulfill man's destiny. God is intimately involved in not just the immaterial creation of the soul, but there is purpose and significance to the physical house in which the soul lives. Now, when we look at Genesis 1, we're told that man is to rule. Rule comes from the Hebrew word radah, which means to have dominion, to rule, or to dominate. This is not a passive term. This shows that man is supposed to take initiative, and he is to plan, he is to develop, he is to utilize nature for his own purposes. He is to exercise control and inventiveness. The word subdue is from the Hebrew word tabash, which means to subdue. It's used later of, of a king, to subdue a foreign army. It means to bring something under control, to bring it into bondage. So what man is to do is to go out and bring nature under his control. This is in contrast to pantheism, which says that man just lives and goes with the flow. He just lives with nature. He's part of nature. But we are to bring nature under our control. That means that we are to learn everything there is to learn about the creation. So all of science should have its roots in understanding what this is sometimes called the dominion mandate, the dominion mandate that man manage to go out and control his environment. That means we have to learn everything there is to learn about the environment. We categorize and classify everything. And that includes, of course, theology and doctrine. We have the Word of God, and we have to bring it under our control, and we do that by studying every detail. There's a tremendous analogy here that just as God creates the animals, then you have all these animals, just all this random data, so to speak, out there. And then he begins to bring them to the man, and the man has to name them. Well, in order to name them, he has to observe all the details, be able to distinguish the kinds, categorize and classify. He has to take notes. He has to start controlling an enormous amount of information about the entire animal kingdom and then simplify it to categorize it and then to name each animal. And the same thing goes on in Doctrine. I can't understand why people think all I want to do is go to church and hear some nice little Bible stories and some good moral. That is failing to fulfill the dominion mandate in relation to Bible study. Bible studies, we have this tremendous amount of data in the Bible, and we have to go through and be able to control all that data and then categorize and classify for the purpose of ordering our lives according to the plan and purposes of God so that He's honest. And if we don't do that, then we have failed in our mission. So there's a lot to learn here in terms of implications and applications. In conclusion, all pagan thought is inherently pantheistic, making man a part of nature. Thus man stands in nature and is not to harm nature. In fact, man begins to worship nature. And that produces a static culture that goes nowhere. That's why you go out and you look at the Aborigines in Australia, you look at the aborigine tribes in Africa, the American aborigines here, and that's why their cultures never advance from century to century. There's no technological development. It is because of their religious views. Religion makes a difference. If you do not, in fact, the difference is when you see is when biblical Christianity merges with some of the Greek philosophical, philosophical concepts is when you get the birth of real science in the Middle Ages, but it is only, Greek philosophy on its own could not do it. It is only when it was merged with and built on a foundation of biblical truth. So, it makes a difference and that's why these chapters, these original chapters in Genesis are so foundational to our thinking. Christianity says that man is over nature and is utilized to utilize nature in order to improve his life. And only on the basis of Christianity can you produce a dynamic, growing culture. Culture, it doesn't just happen, folks. Culture is the result of your religious and philosophical assumptions. That's why, you know, I find it fascinating today that in postmodernism everybody's against Western civilization. Well, think about it. Western civilization as we know it is the product not of Greek and Roman thought, although that has a big influence, I'm not denying that, Western civilization, as we know it, is a result of Christianity. Because Christianity came in and changed the pantheism of the barbarian tribes, the pantheism and the, and the polytheism of Greek Greek and Roman thought. And so Christianity radically transformed. So when you hear people wanting to go against Western thought and Western, take the Western canon out of the study of, of uh, the curriculums in the schools, this is a very subtle attack on Christianity. It's what made Western civilization what it is. And I'm not saying it's perfect or that there aren't serious problems or anything like that. I'm just saying that what made it distinct from all the other cultures, because if you go back in history and look at the way things were before Christ, you look at what was going on in Europe, it was no different than anywhere else in the world, and it was just barbarism. Now, we need to move on. This is just a survey just trying to help you understand the Old Testament, but we have to understand these initial chapters and what's going on in the creation of man or what happens later won't make sense. In the image of God, it is man and woman together that represent God on the earth. God makes the image male and female. It's not male. So this shows that there is an essential identity and equality between male and female. So this destroys any kind of view of male dominance in terms of that the man is inherently better. He's different. He has a distinct role. As we'll see, the woman has a distinct role. But as image bearers of God, they are to work together as a team to fulfill the dominion mandate. But in that team, just like in any team, there's a distinction of roles. And then finally, the believer, being conformed to the image of Christ, is to represent Christ as ambassador on the earth. You see, what has happened is man's created in the image of God. And then that image is marred and distorted by sin. So man procreates and replicates according to the image and likeness of Adam. Then when you come into the New Testament with regeneration and sanctification by means of God the Holy Spirit, we are being renewed according to the image of Jesus Christ. As a believer grows and matures on the basis of doctrine and his thinking is transformed, he moves back to where he can have that same kind of divine viewpoint look on history and on nature that characterized Adam so that he can begin to fulfill the role that God originally assigned to man because the human race and human history has moved from normality before the fall to abnormality after the fall and it's only through the sanctification that we begin to return to normality and to be able to fulfill the original conditions that God laid out for the creation of man. And in the church, this defines man as the image of Christ, as the ambassador. Just as Adam was to represent God to the creation as the vice regent, So the believer is to represent Christ to the earth as the ambassador of Christ. Now when we come to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2 is going to expand the concepts that we see hinted at in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. In Genesis 2, 15 we read, "...then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it." And then if you look down at 19 and 20, We read, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So there's a method to the procedure here, and that is not only to to, uh, give man the opportunity to start fulfilling his role as the ruler of the earth, but he is to realize that there's something missing. That there was a, a pair of everything. But there is no creature that corresponds to himself. So God is creating in Adam a sense of absence, a sense of need. The creation of the woman. Now when we look at Genesis 2, just to give you a brief overview of the chapter. In the first nine verses we see the vegetative condition of the earth. There's no rain on the earth at this time. The plants have not sprouted yet. The seeds are there. And we're told that there is no man to cultivate. So we see right away that one of the things we'll emphasize is that man is designed to work. Work is not a consequence of the fall. Work changes its nature after the fall, but from the very beginning, man was to cultivate. He was to work in the garden. The garden was not... It didn't rain at this time. It says that the earth at that time was watered by a mist. We see in verses 7 and 8 the creation of man. That man is made from the dust of the soil. The chemicals of the ground are mixed together, and God forms the physical house of man. In verse 7, we read, The Lord God formed man of dust in the ground. So that's the formation of the physical body, biological life. And then God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. And here that emphasizes the impartation of soul and human spirit. God takes the immaterial part of man and breathes it in. So you have two factors: You have biological life and you have soul life. But it is not until the two come together in one that you have full human life. What the scripture teaches is that God immediately or directly creates the soul of each individual and imparts that at the moment of physical birth. At the moment of conception, man is used uh, immediately. God immediately or directly creates the soul, and He indirectly creates each human body through procreation. So through procreation you have the development of physical life from this point on, but not soul life. Soul life cannot be created through a physical process. It is only by God directly doing it. But what we see from this point on in Psalm 139 and other passages is that does not give us the right to somehow denigrate or reduce the significance of the formation of biological life in the womb. Because God is intimately involved with the formation of biological life in the womb in Psalm 139 and that this biological life is significant because it is designed to be the physical home of the image of God. So this elevator is not merely a mass of flesh. It's not merely a collection of biological cells and DNA and and blood and bone. It is more than that. God is directly involved in its development, Psalm 139, and so that has tremendous implications in in many different areas related to human life. uh, The abortion debate and other things like that. Verse 8, God plants a garden toward the east in Eden. There's a distinction made in the text between Eden and the garden. Eden is where God dwells. The garden is separate. It's a distinct area. And then there is the planting of two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we see these things throughout Scripture. In fact, when you come to the end of Scripture, in the new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem, what's at the center of the new Jerusalem? The tree of life. Ultimately, this is portrayed as the cross, foreshadows the cross, which is the tree of life of salvation. Now, verses 10 through 17 describes the geography. Just a couple of points to observe is that the rivers flow out of Eden and divide. There are four rivers. They don't converge. They diverge. There's no place like that on planet Earth. There's a vast amount of minerals on the Earth. Because the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. So there's a rich mineral deposit here. I think that the geography, the structure, some of the physical laws that characterize the pre-flood Earth would make us think that we'd gone to another planet if we were to go there today. It looked different. In some ways, it functioned differently. It was a perfect environment beyond anything we could ever imagine, and that was completely destroyed, and all traces of it except for fossil remains were eradicated by that one-year deluge of the uh, water judgment in Genesis 6 through 9. And then we have the prohibition given, the test given in verses 16 and 17, God says that I've given you everything you need. You can eat freely of everything I've given you, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And the instant death indicates death. What happened when they disobeyed God was spiritual death and separation from God. This is the warning. And then from verses 18-25, we see the creation of the woman, uh, Isha, who is designed to be a helper. To the man. And the word for helper is aether, which God is considered an aether to man, a helper to man. This is not an insignificant role. This is not some secondary, lesser function. If God takes on that role to man, then we can't say anything or think anything that being a helpmate, being a helper, being an assistant is somehow less significant. To say that the role of being a helper, an assistant to the husband is somehow less significant is blasphemy, folks. Because what you're saying is that God Himself, when He takes on that role, is less significant. I mean, we have to take the Bible at its word and use that to transform our relationship. This is the essence of what a marriage is all about, that the man and woman together function as the image of God in ruling. And the man has a primary role, in carrying out certain tasks, and the woman is created to come alongside and to help him in his task. And what happens so often and what causes so much problems in marriages is because as a result of the uh, feminist movement is women say, okay, I have my job and I'm going this way and the man's going this way, and they're like two cars driving down a highway at 80 miles an hour in two separate lanes the picture in the Scripture is they're both in the same car, going the same way, one helping the other. And as I've said over the years, ladies, one of the most important things you need to do before you get married is find out where God's taking that man you're going to marry. Because your job, if you're going to fulfill God's plan, purpose, and destiny for your life, your job is to help Him get there. Your job is not to, be, not to go in the direction you think God wants you to go. You think God's taking you in a different direction in that man, then you better not get married. Because you that is not the design. The design is in your role is to help him get where God's taking him. Not for you not for y'all just to just kind of get together for companionship and have a good time as you go in your separate direction. So the woman is designed to be a helper, an aether to help the man. Now verse nineteen and twenty go on to describe the function of man in terms of the work that he's carrying out. But I want to go back and look at verse 15. Just a minute. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And here we have the word for cultivate is the word avad. In the Hebrew, it means to work, to serve, to carry out responsibility. So a lot of times people get the idea, well, all they did in Eden was just sat around, they ate fruit, and they just had a great time. But what we see here is there's a responsibility there. They're designed to work, avav, and incidentally the same word is used of worship, to serve God. So their work, their entire life was in service and worship to God. The two terms here are related to worship. And what we can begin to do, if we had time, is to begin to develop a theology of worship by looking at this verse that ultimately worship is carrying out the responsibilities that God gives us. Now, in order to carry out the responsibilities that God gives us, first of all, we have to understand what they are, don't we? And the only way we can understand who we are and what our responsibilities are is to study the Word of God. We don't get that by going out and doing empirical studies in sociology. We get it by doing detailed study in the Word of God, and then we find out who man is, is the image and likeness of God, what his problems are because of sin, and God's solution in terms of salvation. So that the starting point of worship is Bible study. Bible study. The outwork of worship is fulfilling our responsibilities in terms of the plan of God. The second word that's used here to keep the garden is the word shamar, which also means to guard or to watch, to keep. So man is to work the garden and to guard the garden. He has a watchman position here. Now we know when Satan comes along with the serpent that there was something to guard the garden from, don't we? And man fail to fulfill that responsibility. So part of our responsibility is to guard, to be a protection over that which God has delegated to us. And there's an obvious application, Terrence for your role and responsibility in relationship to your children. Remember, having children is part of the function of being in the image and likeness of God to multiply and fill the earth. So, conclusion, work itself is not a curse. It is the essence of what man is supposed to do. This leads us to develop the idea that, that worship means fulfilling God's role as he is created to do as He is intended. And just in terms of development, see, we begin to develop a whole theology here of work and labor. That work is honorable. Work is something that we are to be engaged in. We're always going to have responsibility. It is only after the fall that that work becomes toilsome, that it becomes laborious, that it becomes the sweat of the brow. But prior to the fall, it is, it is wonderful and forms our, our basic purpose on the earth, Work only becomes burdensome or toilsome when the creation itself is cursed because of man's sin. And then after this, or the first real function is, uh, of the, the image of God is when Adam is naming the animals. In the ancient Near East, naming is tantamount to exercising control and dominion over something. So the way we control things is through classification and categorization And now we need to come to Genesis three, the fall of man. In Genesis chapter three, we see the test that they have to face: whether they will obey God's prohibition to stay away from the and not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil; whether they will not eat, or whether they will disobey God. The serpent, which is Satan, comes in the form of a serpent. And it said that he is the most subtle of all the beasts of the field. This means that he understood all, understood all of the implications of what he was doing and knew just what to do in order to trap the woman. He had been observing them and he made a decision that perhaps this is the weak link here. And so he phrases the question in such a way that however she answers it, she's wrong. Sort of like asking the question, have you, been, have you quit beating your wife? However you answer it, you're in trouble. Well, if she answers the question, she has to make a judgment on the truthfulness of God. Did God really say, Did God really is this really a good idea not teaching the spirit? Is this really a sufficient thing for God to have done? And so she by answering it, she has to judge God, and therein lies the basic or the root problem. Now she doesn't sin. It's not sin till she actually eats. But once she starts to think independently, the die is cast. So the woman sins first and then the man. But because the woman's deceived and not the man, that has tremendous implications later on for leadership and for uh, the role of women in the church, the role of man in the church and in leadership in First Timothy chapter 2. So they fail the test and the result is a knowledge of sin. They are told there is no good and evil. And this is human good. This is not good in terms of righteousness. They already knew that. This is good in terms of counterfeit good. This is good in terms of human good. This is not uh, good in terms of perfect righteousness. So we read in verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now they're exposed, they're vulnerable, and they try to solve their problem on their own by sowing fig leaves. This is typical of mankind. He tries to solve his problems from his own resources rather than upon God's resources. And then when God comes to walk in the garden, they hide. They hide from the Lord, and the Lord seeks them out. And again we see this consistent pattern that God seeks out man. This is the grace of God. God does not leave man in his fallen condition. He continually reaches out. God does everything necessary for man all the time. He continually provides the issue is man's volition. And then He calls man, He locates man, and He pronounces the curse and we see this laid out in Genesis 3:14 through 18. In Genesis 3:14 and 15 we see the curse on the woman. I mean on the uh, on, on nature. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle. What's the implication there? The cattle are cursed too. See, curse are you more than the cattle. All nature is going to be cursed, the entire animal kingdom. The entire vegetative kingdom is going to resound with the consequences of Adam's sin. But you serpent more than all the others, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. The implications of that is that the created order moves from perfect environment to fallen environment once removed. We're going to get fallen environment twice removed after the flood. So it's, they had a better environment before the flood than we have now. It's only once removed from a, a perfect environment. Verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, of course he's talking to the serpent, and between and, and Satan who is in the serpent, and between your seed and her seed. He, that is her seed, which is a, an allusion to a future Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be true humanity and undiminished deity. He shall bruise you on the head, a fatal wound which is which took place on the cross, and you shall bruise him on the heel, also took place on the cross. It was not a fatal wound, though because our Lord was raised from the dead the third day. So this is the first mention of the gospel and it is called the proto, meaning first the proto evangelium, the first indication of God's gracious provision of a Savior. Then the woman is cursed. Remember The curse of the woman is related to her function in the Adamic covenant. She was to be fruitful and multiply. Now I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. So in terms of her original purpose, there is now going to be pain associated with it. There's going to be pain. There's going to be a menstrual cycle. None of that was there before. And biology changed, folks. I've heard some people say say, well, they could have really had kids. They really would not have uh, been able to procreate in the garden because it was a perfect environment so the women. women would not have had a monthly cycle. But, folks, so think about it. There were no carnivores in the garden either. Their whole biology changed. Their, their, their whole digestive system had to change to move from being a grannivorous animal to a carnivorous animal. So biology changed. Um, digestive systems changed. Dental systems changed. Everything was transformed because of sin. So now there's going to be pain in childbirth. And not only is there going to be a problem in childbirth, but the second aspect of the curse on the woman is also related to her role and function. She was created to be an aider, a helper, an assistant to the husband. But now her desire, and the word here is kishuka, which does not mean sexual desire, as some have taught, but it means a desire to control, a desire to dominate. So instead of wanting to help her husband, now she wants to have her way and do things and go in her direction and set the agenda for the marriage. So this sets up the the whole pattern for the war between the sexes. And the only way this is reversed is through regeneration and sanctification. When as a result of learning and applying doctrine, the elements of the curse begin to be thrown back as we walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. So you see the contrast. He wants to run things in the home and wear the pants, but he's going to dominate her. I mean, this is a very negative term here. He's going to want to dominate her. And this is, of course, why white men have dominated subjugated women all through the years, why women are in rebellion and feminism now. Mostly it's a man's fault because they haven't understood the biblical teaching of what it truly means for husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church. So all this sets precedence for understanding everything the Bible says about marriage and family from this point on. Then to Adam to the man who says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. A lot of implications there, but I won't go there this morning. And have eaten from the tree about which I command you, saying, You shall not eat from the Cursed is the ground. Now in it has man right in the arena of his originally covenanted responsibility. Now work is going to nature is going to fight you. Before it was cooperative. Now it's going to be antagonistic. Cursed is the ground because you in toil you shall eat of it. There was work before the fall, but it wasn't toil. Now it is toil. And toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Antagonism. And you shall eat the plants of the field. Notice, vegetated. He's a vegetarian. He's not eating the animals yet. Verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then finally, what we see here is the man was to cultivate the garden. Now the land is hostile. The man's responsibilities have become burdensome to him. The woman who was designed to help him now desires to control him. Painless procreation becomes painful labor. The animal kingdom is affected. It is transformed. And the botanical kingdom is affected. But God is still redemptive. And the Lord God, the implication for the animal rights crowd, profound in this verse. Notice the first one to take the life of an animal is God. Incidentally, in the whole environmentalist debate, they want to blame man for the problem. But they don't want to blame man for the problem to the degree the Bible blames man for the problem. You see how profoundly the Bible blames man The reason yeah, you're right, the environment's screwed up. You know why it's screwed up? Because Adam can. I mean, it is really screwed up, much worse than you think it is. I mean, there's no Greenpeace advocate out there who thinks that the environment is as screwed up as the Bible says it's screwed up. He can't live with that. He just thinks it's, it's uncomfortable for him. So the Lord kills the first animals. Why? To indicate the seriousness and the devastating consequences of sin and to give the visual image picture of what has to be done to solve the problem. This is serious. This is profound. Life has to be taken. And so he, he uh, t- kills these animals, and of course he, he taught them about sacrifice, and he, he closed them. Just as we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, that we might have salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. So God closed Adam. He solved their problem. They couldn't solve it with fig leaves. God is the one and God is the only one who can solve our problems. And if God can solve the greatest problem we ever face, then God can solve any other problem that we face. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank You for the privilege to look at Your Word and to see to be reminded of Your grace continuously. No matter how man rebels and disobeys, time and time again, You continuously reach out. Your grace initiates and You provide the perfect solution to all our problems. Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their salvation without eternal life, that they would take the opportunity right now to make that search. The issue is very simple. Jesus Christ came to solve the sin problem. He died on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. That all our sins were poured out on Him on the cross. That we might be made the righteousness of God. Father, we thank You that You have this salvation. We pray that at this time, Anyone unsaved would make that decision to trust Christ. All that's necessary is faith alone in Christ alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the implications of what we have studied as we meditate upon them in the coming weeks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.